I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we shift our paradigm and flip our view of scripture from one of good versus evil to a paradigm of life versus death. As we do this, we're more than simply just reading the text and asking these questions, but rather I'm attempting to take my cues from what we see in life, and we see patterns in life revealed in our world around us. And so as we look through scripture, we begin to look for patterns that are present in the text in various different ways. And we looked at a few of those ways to develop some tools in the first few weeks of this experiment. And we've been using these as an attempt to dig deeper into the text in a way that the text seems to invite the reader to enter into. In other words, we are being aware, being aware not only of the text that is being read in the moment, but also being aware of the places in Scripture which repeat and which use these different pictures and develop the themes of the passage in question. As I said last week, I'm not going through this exercise to simply explain the Bible to you. I'm going through this exercise to attempt to give you the tools and give you a, a starting point so that you can begin to do this yourself. If all you're getting from these episodes is what I am saying, then I ask you, please, Open your Bible. Open your Bible even to a place that we haven't covered yet and start reading it and start reading through it multiple times and start looking for those repeated phrases, those repeated words, and use those to develop your idea of what it is that Scripture is talking about in any given place. So this week we are in Genesis 15, which continues the discussion that we began last week. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago we began looking at the life of Avram the first of three men known as the patriarchs of Israel. And we recognize that as Scripture transitions from its worldwide foundational events to the events of a single life, that the scope of the topics that are under discussion shift also from universal truths to more individual and personal truths that we can apply to our own lives in very real ways. Two weeks ago, we looked at the foundational topic of dedication to the cause of God. And we discovered that dedication requires, well, dedication. If you say that you're committed and dedicated to a cause, but then when things get difficult or, or trying and you give up, then you're not really dedicated, are you? You're, you're simply like the idea of dedication. Last week, we began a discussion of the two topics that are best discussed in tandem. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, at the end of this episode, go back and listen to last week's episode. But these two topics are righteousness and faith. And it's all too easy to isolate these topics one from another and to focus on one over the other and to make one of these the thing that's important and the other ones, you can kind of dismiss it and do without it. And yet, as we read scripture, we discover that both topics, both things are absolutely necessary. Those who take righteousness, okay, those who take righteousness and make it the thing that is necessary before God are commonly called legalistic. I don't really like that term because it's a misnomer. But this idea presents itself as being that I am acceptable based on my flesh and the things that I'm doing in my flesh. And these are the people that Paul addresses in Galatians, Ephesians, and elsewhere. And we'll talk about that a little bit today. Alternatively, there are those who believe that simply acknowledging the truth of Yeshua is all that I need. All I need is this, this, this mental assent that Yeshua existed, died, and rose again. And hey, I'm good. 
I call that greasy grace or sloppy agape. There's, it's way too easy to say, well, I intellectually assent to these things. And so now I am, I'm okay. This takes the idea that it is only faith that saves a person. And that once saved, a person has absolutely nothing else to do, nothing else that they can do. All that must occur is that this person must think and believe the right things. And as long as you can hold on to thinking and believing those right things in your brain, never actually transitioning it into your life, not necessary, then you're okay in God's eyes and nothing else matters. And it's these people that James addresses in his letter. The fact is, as we'll see demonstrated this week in this Parsha, is that it is truly impossible to have one without having the other. You cannot separate righteousness and faith from each other. There is one that precedes, but then the other follows, and then it feeds back to the first, and it becomes this symbiotic cycle that continues on. You've got to have the whole cycle. If you just have one piece without the other, you're going to fail. Righteousness without faith is useless, and faith without righteousness is dead. As we saw last week, even our own modern definition of righteousness doesn't stack up to what Scripture shows us and what it reveals of what it's speaking of when it speaks of righteousness. It's not just talking about moral action, but rather it's talking about action in relationship to covenant, action in relationship to relationship with God. And this week, as we look at faith, we may also find that there's a lot of nuance encapsulated in this idea of faith that is completely missed as we have morphed it into this Western idea, as we get more scientific and industrialized with these words when we strip them of any extra connotation. We're going to find that there's more to faith than simply just belief, more than simply head knowledge. So let's read Genesis 15, and then we'll talk about the implications that this chapter has, along with many other chapters in Scripture, have on our own understanding of what faith is and how we can use it in relationship to righteousness. So, Genesis 15. After these events, the word of Hashem came to Avram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Avram. I am your shield. Your reward is exceedingly great. And Avram said, Master Hashem, what would you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damasek? And Avram said, See, you have given me no seed, and see, one born in my house is my heir. And see, the word of Hashem came to him, saying, This one is not your heir, but he who comes from your own body is your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look now towards the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So are your seed. And he believed in Hashem, and he reckoned it to him for righteousness. And he said to him, I am Hashem who brought you out of ur to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Master Hashem, whereby do I know that I possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took all these to him, and cut them in the middle, and placed each half opposite the other but he did not cut the birds. And birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Avram drove them away. And it came to be when the sun was going down, and a deep sleep fell upon Avram, that see a frightening great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Avram, Know for certain that your seed are to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. But the nation whom they serve I am going to judge, and afterward let them come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you are to go to your fathers in peace. You are to be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the crookedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to be when the sun went down and it was dark that see a smoking oven and a burning torch passing between those pieces. On the same day Hashem made a covenant with Avram, saying, I have given this land to your seed from the river of Mitzrayim to the great river, the river Euphrates. But the Canaanite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Yebusite. For the past few weeks, we've been reading the story of this man named Avram. He's a nomad who's been sent traveling from place to place as God and his circumstances have determined. Avram was given a promise of greatness 
from God, but that promise was also connected to a command, to an obedience to a command. That promise was, go from your house to where I will show you, and I will make you great. Well, since that point in the opening verses of Genesis 12, we've watched as Abraham has over and over done the right thing. Not always in the way that we would expect it. Sometimes the things he's done has been just a little bit odd in our circumstances, especially that deal with the king of Egypt. But he's been acting in relationship to the covenant. He's been attempting to follow through on what it is that God is asking him to do. He's been acting in righteousness, true righteousness, and his actions have all been in response to and in connection to this relationship that's developing between him and Hashem. So if we view the story of Abram simply by reading his story without considering anything else, we could perhaps understand that it is action that brings a person closer to God, that this righteousness view that I spoke of earlier and we would be close to, to a degree, and yet we'd be really far away. Because if it was simply action, if it was simply doing the right thing, being righteous, then Ketaleomer, the king from last week, he did all the right things. He would be close to God, right? He would be the righteous king if it was simply just doing the right thing. But as we saw in the text, it wasn't Ketaleomer that was declared as the righteous king. It was Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was the priest of the Most High God and the King of Peace. This He had a relationship with Hashem, and it was that relationship and that covenant that made him the righteous king. So if scripture stopped there, then we could perhaps understand that being right before God is simply doing the right thing. That's it. Just do the right thing. You're, you're okay. But then we have chapter 15. Chapter 15 shifts it a little bit, and it gets us to consider all that we've read before about this man, Abram. So once again, this chapter begins with a promise from God. And that promise is, I will be your shield, your great reward. This time, rather than Abram saying, cool, what is it you want me to do? Abram spots a problem. He says, wait, 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 wait. You've given me this promise before and yet I still don't have this offspring that you promised. This is the third time that God has made this promise to Avram. The first being in chapter 12, when God promises, if you follow me, I'll make you a great nation and a blessing to the world. In chapter 13, then, God promises again that he will give Avram the land of Canaan, and the promise promises that his seed will be as the sands of the sea. Now comes this third promise. And what is Avram's initial response? He questions it. Who wouldn't? You've promised this three times now, God, and I, I still haven't seen it. So where is this promise? Where is the fulfillment of this promise? Are you really going to do this? Are you going to be faithful in what you've said you're going to do? It's at this point that God restates the promise once again. But this time, rather than look to the sea and the sands that are there for the picture of how great your seed is going to be. Now he says, look to the heavens and the stars that are there. And if you can count them, that's how your seed is going to be. Innumerable. Just It's going to be everywhere, scattered throughout the darkness. Pinpoints pin, pin of light in the darkness, if you will. When we get to the discussion later of heaven and earth as two witnesses, these promises will take on a, a different cast and a different slant because it's these things that God points to as the witnesses that his promise will come to pass. The sea, the sands of the sea, the earth and the sea, and then the heavens. He's putting heaven and earth in, uh, not in opposition, but in conjunction with each other, which, as we've talked before, is the end goal of heaven and earth coming together. But we'll get into this in a later date. For now, just understand that it's more than just, hey, you're going to have a lot. There's, there's a bit more being said here. Sorry, my, my cat is uh, bemoaning the fact that uh, my daughter is not here right now. So just bear with it. So it's not until this reassurance of the promise that's been stated three times that it's specifically stated in the text that Avram believed and it was counted as righteousness. This is a verse we read all through Scripture, and we're going to look at a couple of those examples today. 
Too many times we get this picture of Avram as this man who's so solid in his faith that he's completely unshakable in his certainty that God will carry out his promises. And he becomes that. But right now, right here, we see that after God has promised Avram the same thing three different times, Avram questions. Are you sure? He does more than question. As we'll see in a second, he asks for a sign that this is going to occur. We'll get to that in a minute. So too often our definition of faith is steeped in this thought that having faith means having no doubts. And yet that's not what we find in Scripture. Just as courage is not a complete absence of fear, so too faith isn't a complete absence of doubt. So let's look at faith. Let's get a good place to start, a good solid foundation on what it is that faith is and what it entails. And I thought that a good place to start this would be Hebrews 11, the, you know, the hall of faith, the hall of fame of faith, the, the heroes of the faith, as it's called in some places. But this chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews, it starts with a definition of faith. So let's look there. Hebrews 11, 1. If faith is the substance of what is expected or hoped for, and it's the proof of what is not seen. The substance of hope that thing that you have in the future, that it, there's a substance to hope. And it's a, a proof of things that are unseen. This idea of what faith is can be kind of difficult for us to wrap our minds around. So let's take a moment and see if we can understand this a little better. If we hope for something, if we look into the future and see what it holds, and we have a, a hope of what the future is going to hold, if we look at God's promises and we take him at his word, that he is going to fulfill the things that he has promised he's going to fulfill, even if we don't necessarily see it in the moment, even if we might be questioning. Are you sure? Did I really hear you right? Is this, is this, is this really what's happening? If we do that, what substance is there in that? In looking to the future and seeing what God has promised. The only substance, the only tangible things that I can think of in, in relationship or regards to the, a person's hope is found in how a person acts the way that things are now. In the face of reality speaking completely against that hope. A person's words, actions in the present betray our hope for the future and they produce a substance in the present. Okay? So let's move on. Proof of the unseen. How does that work? Well, our scientific Western minds tell us that anything unseen can't possibly be known. But that's disingenuous, right? Science is full of things that can't ever be seen, but which they claim to have proof. Things like dark matter, gravity, solar winds, other dimensions, and more. They claim to have all of this proof that these things exist, or at least a lot of evidence that these things exist. So the fact is that we can't allow science to tell us that something has to be observable in order to be true, because their own methodology doesn't hold that up at all. All we need is to have a witness or evidence of the effects of that unseen thing in our world. And if we can have the evidence of that unseen thing in our world, we can have the necessary proof for belief. In the realm of our relationship with God, and in the realm of our relationship with His Word, the proof we seek is found in human history, but it's also found in our own testimony, in our story, and in the stories of others, the testimonies of others. The way that God, the unseen, has interacted in our lives previous to this moment is proof not simply of his existence, but it's proof of his character as well. Miracles, both big and small, remind us that God is there and that he cares. The things that he's done for us and the ways that he's revealed truth to us. You know, the fact is, we all have these proofs for ourselves. And in most cases, the proof is very personal. It's very individual. It's our testimony. It's our story. It's what we've been through. The way we act in relationship to God's promises and the way that God has acted in relationship to us. 
Those are the two things that work together in Hebrews 11.1 1, to create faith. Another way of restating this might be that faith is how we act in relationship to what we hope for. And the experiences that we can look back on as proof of a reality that we can't yet see. And there's something truly profound in this understanding of faith, in my opinion, because it removes faith from the realm of the internalized and disconnected thought patterns, and it brings faith out into the world of action, the world of reality. It's not just some fancy thought that I hold in my head. It's something that I'm acting out here and now in our world. So was Genesis 15 the first time that Abraham believed? Not at all. Abram believed all the way back in Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 when he acted on the words of Hashem. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10 says, It is by faith Avram obeyed when he was called to go out of that place which he was about to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as a stranger, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking for the city having foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So let's apply this to the Hebrews 11.1. 1. He looked to the proof of his encounter, his own testimony, of what he could not see, being God, that then produced a substance, his obedience, of his hope that the promise that God had given would come true. That's faith, and that's the example that Hebrews 11 gives us. This is where our modern tendency towards looking at faith as a simple belief and knowledge, it really doesn't serve us at all. In the modern church, we look at an idea like faith, and it's something that happens in your head and goes no further. But as we see from Hebrews 11, and if you read through that entire chapter, please do, faith is something that can't exist in a vacuum. And especially... It can exist separate from action. If we take this understanding of faith as being something that creates a substance based on what we hope for, we see that action is a very real part of our faith. And that's not a new idea. James was facing this very same thing in regard to the definition of faith when he wrote his letter. James 2, 17-22 says, So also faith, if it does not have works, is in itself dead. But someone might say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I shall show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe this and shudder. The demons also have that mental knowledge, that head knowledge, but they don't do anything about it. But do you wish to know, O foolish man, that the faith without the works is dead? Was not Abraham our father declared right by works when he offered Isaac on the altar? Do you see that faith was working with his works, and by his works his faith was perfected? James shows us that faith and works, they're intimately intertwined. One without the other falls short. It's useless. Fact is, is that we can't count upon either one in isolation to save us. But wait, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Yes, God initiates salvation. He gives it as a free gift. But then he expects us to operate as if we've actually received the gift. If you get a gift from someone and you never use the gift, what good is it? Have you really received the gift? Is it just sitting on your shelf and you never do anything with it? If you've been given salvation, you need to do something with it. Faith must lead. But we can't isolate it and say, and it's done. We can't take Ephesians 2.8 as a soundbite and build an entire theology off of a single verse, especially when we find that there are other verses that point out the extension of this, a larger picture of this. If we continue on in James 2, from where we were reading before, we'll pick up in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father declared right by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working with his works? And by the works his faith was perfected. And the scripture was filled, which says, 
Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. You see, then, that a man is declared right by works, and not by faith alone. And that's a pattern we see all through Scripture. Let's look back at Noah, right? Noah found grace in the eyes of God. We read that specifically in the text. He was given a gift of salvation. But if Noah had simply believed and said, Hey, I am saved through grace. I've got my intellectual knowledge. No works are absolutely necessary for me to be saved. Noah would have perished with everyone else. And that's the substance of Hebrews 11. If we look through the entire chapter, we find that each and every hero of the faith listed here is someone that believed and then walked out that faith through their future action. It was their future action that modeled that they truly believed. It's the faith that impels and compels the believer to act in righteousness. And that is what we see in the story of Abram. So if faith is the substance of what is hoped for, and the substance of what we hope for is found in our own actions, and those actions reveal our hope to the world, we should know what it is we hope for, right? This is something we've discussed all the way back in episode 6. Our hope is the new creation. Our hope is heaven coming to earth and God and man dwelling together. Our hope is the kingdom of God and the defeat of sin and death once and for all. When Yeshua started his ministry in Luke 4, he, he stands before the synagogue and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he reads a specific passage. And it's this passage that is kind of the announcement of his ministry from then on forth. It's the announcement of, hey, this is what I am going to do now. So Luke 4, 16 through 21 says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and according to his practice he went into the congregation on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And having unrolled the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of Hashem is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to send away crushed ones with a release, to proclaim the acceptable year of Hashem. And having rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the congregation were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been filled in your hearing. Later on in Luke, three chapters later, we read of John the Baptist, also a man of faith, and yet we find that he is also beset by doubt, especially in regards to the identity of Yeshua as the Messiah. When John the Baptist doubts who Yeshua is, how does Yeshua answer John the Baptist? Luke seven nineteen through 23 and, and John, calling two of his disciples near, sent to Yeshua, saying, Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? And coming to him, the men said, John the Immerser has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? And in that same hour he healed many of diseases and afflictions and wicked spirits, and he gave sight to many blind ones. And Yeshua answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Blind receive sight, lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf do hear, dead are raised, and the gospel is brought to the poor. And blessed is he who shall not stumble in me. The sign that Yeshua gives to John that he is, in fact, this hoped-for Messiah is not a military victory. It's not an army at his back. It's not mounds of wealth or an overwhelming abundance of human power. That was the mistake that Hezekiah made when he was asked what his hope for was by the Babylonians. But instead, Yeshua points to the kingdom of God invading the earth by death being abolished, blind being given sight, deaf hearing, sick being made whole. Now I can hear you right now, but I can't do that. I can't heal the sick or give sight to the blind. Besides, miracles don't happen anymore, and they certainly don't happen around me. My first question to you is, are you sure? Are you sure about that? In follow-up, I would submit that there are very real ways that we can practice bringing the kingdom of God into our world now without needing miracles to do so. The very first declaration that Yeshua gives us back in Luke 4 gives us keys to the bringing of the kingdom of God here and now. 
Proclaim the gospel to the poor. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Free those who are captives of sin, shame, death. Add to that, act in love, kindness, mercy, compassion, patience, and justice. Our world is in short supply of these things, and yet it is these things that reveal that the kingdom of God is in our midst even now. These are the signs of the kingdom of God coming to our world. Each one of us can do this. And if we act in faith, if we act in righteousness, we will do this. Because faith leads to a person being righteous in their actions. And being righteous in your actions leads one to being faithful to the covenant or faithful to God. This chapter specifically is focused on faith, though. And we'll find this interlinking of faith and righteous action intricately interwoven in this narrative as well. After Avram is given his promise, he believes the witness, and he's counted as righteous. But then comes verse 8, and Avram asks for a sign that this will occur. Wait a minute, it just said that Avram believed, and now he's asking for a sign? He had Amunah, he had faith. He should be good, right? What's this deal about knowing what God has said is true? I thought faith was knowing what God has said is true. Oh, ye of little faith, or is it possible that we don't quite understand what faith is? Faith is the substance of our hope. And if we look at Avram's life, he had that substance. He had hope, and he acted out that hope in very substantial ways. The promise was yet unseen. Is it that Avram is asking for the proof of what is not yet seen? He didn't need faith in God. God was appearing to him in visions. Avram didn't need the hope or the substance of that hope. He was acting it out daily in his life. Perhaps it was that he simply desired proof that this unseen promise that had been made and revealed to him three times now was actually going to be fulfilled in truth. God, you've told me three times. I have yet to see a single bit of this being accomplished. I'm willing to keep working. I'm willing to keep going towards this. I'm willing to keep doing what you ask. But am I just chasing wind, or is there some way that I can know for sure that you are as on board as you say you are? One of the things that we'll learn about gods in the ancient Near East, especially as we get into other books like Exodus, they're very fickle. They don't necessarily do what they're going to say. And you can read, you can read any account of mythological gods, and you'll find that they make promises and they don't keep them. They're, they're constantly just changing their minds and doing whatever they want. But the God of Abraham, he doesn't do that. And so Avram's saying, are you, are you just like one of these other gods that you keep promising these things, but then you're not going not gonna to cause it to happen? And so God graciously honors his request, and he begins a ceremony of covenant. Now, to many of us in the West, what occurs next, it's a complete mystery. What is happening? Many have tried to steep this in, the, in a sacrifice of sorts. This is not a sacrifice at all. He is not sacrificing these animals to God on an altar. He is completing an ancient Near East covenant ceremony. And to understand what's happening here, we kind of need to understand the ritual of a covenant ceremony. Because this ritual, it's not something that's limited to the Bible. It's something that occurred in all of the ancient Near East. So we have ample archaeological evidence to attest that this happened both inside and outside of Israel for millennia. So let's take a moment and let's look at the ritual and the symbolism of that ritual as how it regards to covenant. So there's a place in Scripture where we actually have this ritual, for the most part, revealed to us what exactly is going on here. And that's in Jeremiah 34, verse 18. So let's read Jeremiah 34, 15 through 20, and, and kind of get a grasp of what's going on here. And it says, And you recently turned and did what was right in my eyes, each man proclaiming release to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. But you turned back and profaned my name, and each one of you took back his male and female slaves, whom he had set free at their pleasure, and brought them into subjection to be your male and female slaves. Therefore thus said Hashem, 
You have not obeyed me in proclaiming release, each one to his brother and each one to his neighbor. See, I am proclaiming release to you, declares Hashem, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the scarcity of food. And I shall make you a horror to all kingdoms of the earth. And I shall give the men who are transgressing my covenant, who have not established the words of my covenant, which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the heads of Judah, the heads of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and priests and all of the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I shall give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And their corpses shall be for food for the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth. So the ceremony of the creation of the covenant, the ceremony began with animals being split in half. And then the parties that are involved in making the covenant would walk between these pieces of the animal before they would sign on to the covenant. The idea being represented here is that should one of the parties that has passed through these pieces transgress the terms of the covenant, what's stipulated in whatever the covenant says, then what's happened to the animal, let it happen to this person that's passing through. They're accepting that kind of judgment upon themselves if they fail to live up to the terms of this covenant that they're making. This is the ceremony that would then seal that covenant. And in the covenant, we'll, we'll get into exactly what the terms of the covenant covenants contain in later places. But one of those is going to be that if there's a transgression, then it's going to be the God of that party that oversees the fulfillment of causing what happened to those animals to happen to the person. It's going to, in essence, curse that person. Their own God is going to curse them because they failed to live up to the covenant that they made in that God's name. It makes perfect sense when you understand what the covenant means and what's going on here. So every time that we read in Scripture of two parties creating a covenant in Scripture, it's this serious. Because every time, this ceremony would have been enacted in order to seal that covenant. That's how seriously we should take our covenant with the Father. If I don't uphold my end of the covenant, may what happened to those animals happen to me. And it did. It happened to Yeshua in my place. Because I am completely incapable of upholding my end of the covenant. Truly. Because... Uh, I am a human steeped in sin, and my flesh will rebel against the covenant. That's not an excuse for me to stop trying. That's an excuse for me to try harder. But to recognize, I'm going to fail. And when I do, the punishment's been taken. But I should do my best to not add to that punishment or to not be the cause of that punishment any more than I already have. So returning to this narrative, as soon as Avram completes the preparation for the covenant, some birds of prey attempt to destroy the possibility of this covenant occurring. They are coming to defile this covenant. And as we spoke earlier in Scripture, birds of prey, they're symbolic of evil spirits in other places in Scripture. Revelations 18.2 says, And he cried with a mighty voice, saying, Babel the great has fallen, and fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, and a haunt for every unclean spirit, and a haunt for every unclean and hated bird. Demons, unclean spirits, and unclean birds all kind of being joined together there. Matthew 13.4 is a parable of the sower, and it says that he sowed, and indeed some fell by the wayside, and birds came and devoured them. Well, in the interpretation that Yeshua gives later, he reveals that the bird is the adversary coming and stealing the word away from the hearer's ears. And in a slightly different context, we read of curses in Deuteronomy 28 that will come upon Israel if they don't fulfill the covenant. And we read this in verse 26. It says, And your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth with no one to frighten them away. No one to beat away the birds from the carcasses. No Abraham to protect the covenant with you and to stop the adversary from devouring you. So in faith, Abraham acted righteously. 
he cut the animal in pieces for the making of this covenant. It was faith that led him to obey and fulfill the action that was commanded of him. And by faith, Avram acted righteously and fought off those who were seeking to destroy the covenant, to destroy the promise before it could even begin. The truth is, and that we see here, things always get worse before they get better. The sun goes down. Avram falls asleep. He's wrapped in what's described as a frightening darkness. And all of this is a foreshadowing of what's going to occur next. Because remember, God has promised Avram's seed. Avram hasn't yet seen it. God has promised the land to Avram. Avram's seen the land, but he has no possession in it. God has promised to bless Avram. Uh, really? I haven't really seen a whole lot of blessing. Yeah, we won that battle and I got a bunch of stuff in Egypt when we left. But, eh. So when God comes to Avram here, what does he open with? Know for certain that your seed that I have promised you will not live in this land, but will live in another land. What? You promised me this land! You're going to tell me that my seed's not going to live in this land? <sighs> Come on. Not only will they not live in this land, they're going to be afflicted by these other people that they're going to live among for 400 years as slaves. Things are going to get darker. They're only going to get worse before they get better. You will have a seed, but we're not there yet. You will have this land. But your immediate seed isn't going to own it. You will be blessed, but first, you're going to be oppressed. But into this darkness, into this fearful time, into this place where it appears as if I have failed you, I, God, Hashem, I will come down into this darkness and I will judge those who have oppressed you. I will deliver you from that darkness. And when you are delivered, you will be blessed with those possessions that I've given you. You will receive seed soon, but this seed will receive the blessing. It will receive the land only after they've received centuries of persecution. In regards to your life, Abraham, don't worry. You, you will die here in peace at an old age. Your children, however, It'll be four generations before they get back here. And when they do, they're going to be used to judge the current inhabitants of this land. And then something interesting happens. In the darkness, Abraham falls asleep. And then a smoking oven and a burning torch pass between the pieces of the animal. Who passes between the pieces of an animal? Only those who are signing on to a covenant. And God just stated the terms of a covenant right there. And now he himself is passing through the pieces, declaring that he is the one responsible for this covenant. And if this covenant is not upheld, what happened to these animals? What happened to God himself? These items also, the flame and the smoke, they, they symbolize the glory of Hashem on earth. And the promise that God gave Abraham was that he would lead his people out of the land that has oppressed them. And then he alone walks through the pieces. And when he does, he does so as a pillar of smoke and a flame. When this promise is fulfilled and God actually takes Israel out of Egypt, what does he appear to them as? A pillar of smoke and a flame. God's providing here, Genesis 15, the symbols that the people of Israel will need centuries later so that when they're taken out, when they're taken to Mount Sinai, they know which God it is that's doing this. It's not some random God out there. It's not something somebody we don't know. This is the God who gave our ancestor, Abraham, the promise that this would happen. And now he's causing it to happen. He's 
providing the symbols in the past and the testimony of their patriarchs to build the faith in those future generations that were coming. Just as God seems to always do, a promise of deliverance accompanied by a symbol that people will recognize when it happens, to build faith in the seed of Abraham, a symbol so that they'll know their salvation, so that they'll believe and that that belief will lead to action, that they will have hope in going to the land based on the testimony of what God has already done, that they will have faith. And we have these same symbols provided for us throughout Scripture so that we might be able to recognize our Deliverer. The Torah, the prophets, the promises given here and elsewhere. That's where our faith begins. It begins in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15 with the promises made to Abraham. And then it's revealed in one, in this one-way covenant in which man consumed with sleep, darkness, and fear can't even hope to have a part in, because this promise isn't dependent on us. We will be consumed with darkness and fear, but God is isolated from those. He doesn't succumb to those, and so when that sets in, it's on Him to continue to act faithfully, to act in good faith, right? God will do this work. He will save and he will deliver his people from darkness and oppression. And it's on him to fulfill this work. The seed of Abraham will be those who God works in to bring into this promise. Because all who have faith are the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Faith is the launch pad of the kingdom of God. It's not the end goal, and it's not the only ticket that you need. Yeshua puts it this way in Matthew 7, 24-27, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them shall be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain came down, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them shall be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain came down, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Everyone who hears these words and does them, they will survive the darkness and chaos of this life when the fear and the darkness sets in. Everyone who hears these words and does not do them, they will suffer the great and terrible fall. Faith that hearing these words is the impetus that leads us to action, to doing the words. Faith alone can't save. You hear the words, you have faith in them, but you don't do the words? What good is that? You're building your house on a foundation of sand, and it will fall. Simply keeping the Torah is not enough. What Yeshua was speaking here is the Sermon on the Mount. It's the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And if we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we read the entire thing from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, its entirety, it places a very high standard on action. Because the Sermon on the Mount gives the key to interpreting the Torah with a circumcised heart. Something we will read of in the Torah that must occur. A circumcised heart must happen before the Torah can be kept rightly. And those who act faithfully in response to the command will survive the storms of life. Nothing else, nothing else that you can do will allow you to survive the coming darkness. No amount of preparation in the physical will take you through on its own. You can buy storable foods, you can buy guns, ammo, gold, silver, cash, you can work out every day, you can go and train with your buddies, you can do everything you can think of, and you're building your house on sand. And it will lead to a great and terrible fall. But if you build your house on righteousness, on living the kingdom of God out into the world now, it will provide a firm foundation that will lead to life. 
And that's the rock. That's the rock on which your hope will be firm, on which your faith will be firm, and it will provide a shelter when the storm comes. Taking faith in Yeshua, taking your hope in the kingdom of God, and then producing substance in this world based on those ideas of what you hope for here and now. Because faith without works, James says it is dead. Works without faith, Paul says, is completely useless. We have to meld the two together. We cannot take one without the other. They must be joined before we can be said to truly have faith and before we can be said to be truly acting in righteousness. And that's why it's so difficult and even dangerous for us to attempt to speak on one of these topics without the proper corollary of the other. They both play a role and they work together in symbiosis. Take one away and the other one shrivels up and dies. So if you have not listened to last week's episode, I ask you, please go listen to last week's episode and get a proper definition for righteousness along with this proper definition for faith, according to what I think it is, according to what I'm understanding from the text. Do I think it's concrete and solid yet? Probably not. There's probably some, even some nuances I'm missing even now. But we have to take both of them and we have to work with them together. And my prayer is that as a body and Messiah and as a community of believers, that we can learn to live and learn to grow and embody these ideas and then live them before the world. The way to live the life of the kingdom of God is to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness, to live in faith and to be faithful to covenant. In essence, it's the Deresh Chai, to seek life. All of these pieces are part of seeking life. What does it mean? It means being dedicated. It means having faith. And it means acting righteously. All three of them together produce life. Produce covenant. Produce holiness. And those are things that we're admonished throughout Scripture to have and to do. To not just rest back on what has already been done, but then to take what's been done and push it forward even further. To become a participator in this thing called life. To become a participator in this thing called creation. And to become a participator in the new creation, the kingdom of God in this world. So uh, if you have any questions on this, I, I myself, I still have questions on this. If you have any comments or anything, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you what you what you think, what you have to say. So as you go forward, as you do this thing called life, remember to always seek life in all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.